And welcome back to Bird's Eye View. When it comes to the Orioles, this weekly podcast is your official source for a lack of insight and for baseless opinion. Today is August 13th, 2018. This is episode 249. My name is Scott Magnus. And I'm Jake English. And on this week's show, we're going to keep one eye on the future. Let, wait a second. Let's be honest. We're going to keep both eyes on the future because there's no reason the other eye should be looking at anything else. We'll also look at fame and we'll look at shame. And we'll do that right after we lubricate for the show. It's time for the drink of the week. Jake, what are you drinking this fine evening? I'm drinking an old Oriole Park beer by the Peabody Heights Brewing Company. It is rumored to be, Scotty, the original recipe for Natty Bo. Hmm. And this comes from a, a brewery that is located on the former site of Terrapin Park, which was also known as Oriole Park Number 5. Before, like the Orioles' 2018 season, it burned viciously to the ground. And now it's skunked. And now it's skunked. <laughs> uh, this is okay. This is an okay beer. I mean, for, uh, you know, a nice little Pilsner, it's it's good. Yeah, you know, it's pretty bland, generic, lack of flavor. It suits you, Jake English. It does indeed. I like uh, I like Peabody Heights' uh, other work. The, the Raven beer is good. Yeah. Jake, what about you? What are you drinking? We're transitioning now, and... Uh, a thunderstorm rolled through before we broadcast this, and you know the the air of change is occurring for all of us. So I'm preparing myself. I decided to go ahead and pop a pumpkin ale for this evening. You were the worst. <laughs> I'm ready for October. Bring October on. You are the most basic single white female there <laughs> with your pumpkin spice latte. It's pumpkin spice time, everybody. She's a whiz. Embrace it. If you're interested to see what Scott is putting pumpkin in, please join us on Untapped Drink Socially with us. And, as Gary Thorne would say responsibly, uh, I'm at Jake E 4025 And I'm at MAGN8606, pumpkin lover. That's totally you know what You know what you can do with pumpkin pie spice? You can put it in anything. Yeah, you can put it in anything. Whether you should ingest it in anything is a totally different thing. Jake, as an American University graduate, you've ingested much worse things. Never a pumpkin spice. That being said, it might be time for a good check into the medical wing. Time for your checkup, time for your checkup. I'm gonna check your ears, check your eyes, find out how much you've grown. Time for your checkup. Gonna listen to your heart, think, fix you up, ready to go. Time for your checkup. <laughs> it's okay if you giggle. This will only take a little. Time for your checkup, time for your checkup. All right. So going through the roster that still remains, Craig Gentry, Class A Advanced Rehab Assignment, began this week. Finally. Finally, Buck Showalter can stop talking about Craig Gentry. I got to be honest. Yeah. Looking through the medical wing right now, I do not care about anybody. On you don't care list. about Mark Trumbo being day-to-day right now? No. Okay. No, in fact, that's that's a boon. Not not a. It doesn't hurt us. I hear what you're saying. There, there really is... Nothing at this point that makes me think the medical wing is of any importance. I mean, it's Pedro Araujo, it's Richard Blyer, Craig Gentry, uh, Jan Marinez, uh, Mark Trumbo, Steve Wilkerson, and Gabrielle Yanoa. Can I make a uh, proposal via Model UN rules? Please do. Uh, my proposal for Model UN rules for the remainder of the 2018 season is to eliminate the medical wing. Folks, there's no point to this anymore. False. 
False, false. Scott Magnus, the content is useless. But I know for a fact that there are Bird's Eye View listeners on their way to work each Tuesday morning that yearn for the dulcet tones of Doc McStuffins. Isn't it canceled at this point? Yes. Thanks that's a lot, why Obama. we have to carry the torch. <laughs> nah, I don't think so. We'll it's, see. It's a new day and age. Let me give you a definitive... A red tide is rolling over Maybe. all of us. <laughs> Pumpkin spice everywhere. Pumpkin spice is everywhere. I think that's the, uh, the moment that we need to take it to this week on the Twitters and go through Birdland 280 characters at a time. I think we should just let people make that decision this week on the Twitter and let us know whether you want the medical wing to continue for the rest of this season. Please reply to us at BirdseyeViewBAL, which hashtag the medical wing. All right. Let's go into this week on the Twitters. First tweet, uh, first tweet is from someone named Tyler Mwan, who I believe Mwan. is some sort of scout or something. Hang on. Let He's me ro- Tyler Mwan. Mwan. Breaking, colon. I've spotted a creature rarer than the Amur leopard here in Panama, a Baltimore Orioles scout at an international amateur event. What? Didn't say it was an amateur baseball event. Mm. Ah. Must not be in Korea either. <laughs> uh, well, look what happens when you stop asking about rock bottom. This tweet comes from ESPN Stats and Info at ESPN Stats and Info, otherwise known as at Red Sox Information all the time. The Orioles have been eliminated from ALE's contention despite scoring 12 runs and loss against the Red Sox tonight. They are the first team to score 12 plus runs and lose by 7 plus runs since the Cubs on July 1st, 1999 against the Brewers. The Cubs also lost 19 to 12. So the Orioles are, in fact, partying like it's 1999. Yes. Nice. Scotty, do you have 25 seconds to play some sound for me? Mm, I, I guess. I mean, if we have an hour of this show normally, I think we can go ahead and uh, and do that. That's That shouldn't be an issue. And how about this before the game? Adam Jones always leads the team out. He wouldn't go. He said to Cedric Mullins, you go. You wait, Trey. You wait. You go. Go. We're not going to you go. He said, I'm not going. <laughs> and then finally, Cedric Mullins said, well, somebody's got to play defense out here. So I guess I better go. <laughs> so he did, and the rest of the team followed. I'm going to say this. Look, Adam Jones, sometimes he's crotchety. Sometimes he can be prickly. Other times he's fun. But sometimes he's all class. And that's what I took from this particular moment. Adam Jones could have made it difficult, right? He's already kind of made the Orioles' life difficult uh, refusing a trade. He could have adjusted to not being the center fielder anymore, going to right field in a very negative way, particularly in a season where nothing is going right, particularly in a season where it looks like there's going to be a parting of ways between the Baltimore Orioles and Adam Jones. But I think in this moment, he was legitimately trying to be classy. I think in this moment, he was being the leader that we all, you know, say that he is. So I'm going to tip my cap to the cap 10. I liked that move. I like the way that he's handling this situation. And I think that there's, you know, everybody keeps saying, oh, Mark McLemore influenced him. If Cedric Mullins happens to be an Oriole who's around for when the years are good again, I hope that we get the good parts of Adam Jones injected into Cedric Mullins. I'm still hoping for the cooking show. <laughs> it's just me. It's just me. Um, here's one thing to get our hopes up for and then be let down further this fall. Tweet comes from Craig Mish at Craig Mish. Number one international prospect, Victor Victor Mesa, still going through the process of becoming declared a free agent by the MLB. 
It looks like a potential fall September slash October showcase for interested teams once he is cleared. I still think this is a made-up name. Victor Victor Mesa? Victor Victor Mesa. It sounds made up. Victor Victor Victory. Last tweet comes from Dan Zimbroski, and it goes as follows. I think this is one of Davis's top 10 projectiles by distance this year. And it is a tweet in reference to Rob Freeman uh, posting uh, a David Price 86-mile-per-hour changeup and Chris Davis chucking his bat um, well past first base and right into the shift. Once again, an out for Chris Davis, both for his bat and the ball that is in the glove of the catcher. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, the thing is, that happens every once in a while, I guess. Does it? It's just that when embarrassing things happen to a player that's having an embarrassing season slash end of his career, it just mounts. <sighs> yeah, it almost makes you want to, you know, look at Chris Davis and say, there's got to be something better besides Chris Davis there. There has to be some hope for the future. It can't always be this grim. Jake, let's take a look at that future and fully embrace how grim it actually may be. have officially been eliminated from winning the AL East. Wait, when did this happen? And it's only a matter of time and math before they are completely eliminated from playoff contention. You know, there was a time in which we hoped just to play meaningful games in September, right? That was the thing. Meaningful games in September. Well, folks, we are now failing to play meaningful games in August. In fact, we are playing the most meaningless games in August. So, As such, we need to make some meaning of these games for ourselves. So in that time that remains, I'm going to make a a suggestion. Uh, I suggest that we, we watch these games, but specifically with an eye to the players and ask ourselves a simple set of questions. And there are just three. One, will this player be with the Orioles when they're good again? Two, can this player be developed into a trade chip for when the Orioles are good again? And three, is this player cheap and useful enough to not be in the way until the Orioles are good again? I really think that's what it comes down to, right? Are they going to be part of the solution? Are they going to be a contributor to us getting a part of the solution? Or can we hang on to them because they're not going to cost us the money or the seat that a kid needs so that we can watch them in the meantime. I mean, really, isn't that what we're watching Orioles players for at the moment? Sure. We're looking for some glimmer of hope that maybe this person can be um, some value in the future. And I think this comes back down to the point of, this is why we got rid of Kevin Gossman. It's not that he didn't have value, but in the given time frame that we were looking at, Kevin Gossman wasn't going to contribute to this team's success in order to basically make them a playoff team. And I don't want to be negative about it because there are players that are not going to be part of the winning years who are fun to watch, right? There there are going to be players, and we talked about it a little bit last week, where there are going to be surprises, you know, pleasant surprises. Yeah, Robert Andino. Sure, exactly. And so I think that we can enjoy that just as much as we can watching the kids come up and hoping on them. Um, but the other thing that I, I, I want to ask you about is is this. You know, the game has changed in the past few years. And relievers have become very important, much more important than they were before, right? You think about 
great bullpens. The Yankees have an, had an excellent bullpen. They have an excellent one now. You know, the Do Royals. They? They tried to assemble one. Yeah. I was trying to be nice. The Royals, uh, you know, dominated with their bullpen. The Orioles, in their good years, dominated as best they could. You know, 2014 with that bullpen. Let me ask you this. If the Orioles are in the, the position of trying to develop players and they don't think that they can develop starters, a failed starter can be an excellent reliever at this point. Is sure. it is it a move of a team that's trying to get better? to take middling starters, try to turn them into back-end or middle relievers, and trade them off for useful pieces? Um, I don't even think it's going to be that. I think it's more of a situation that the Orioles are going to be looking at the relief pitchers as much as possible, both to limit the innings for the starting pitching and also to see what kind of talent they have in terms of developing a third pitch or a fourth pitch. So, I think we have seen that with the Orioles going to players such as Cody Carroll, going to an Evan Phillips, going to a Paul Fry, um, even a Devin Hess, uh, David Hess to a certain example. I, I think the Orioles are trying to figure out who is going to be their bullpen for the future. And I think this is one of the reasons why we got rid of Darren O'Day, because he said, let's go ahead and start from, some, from scratch. Um, and I do think that, you know, Michael Givens is going to either make or break his case going forward through the second half of the season. Um, and it'll be very interesting when we get to this all season, whether or not the Orioles are going to say, I, we're willing to give up Michael Givens now to a team because we don't think we're going to be able to get the value for Michael Givens in the next few years. Plus we need a shortstop. Uh, I also think of it this way. Um, you know, we were really disappointed by Brian Mattis. We were really disappointed even by Zach Britton as a starter. And look what we got instead. So I think as— We were really disappointed with some people saying Kevin Gossman wasn't a good starter. Yeah. But I think as as the new— Unless someone is Mike Nusina, <laughs> we are going to be constantly disappointed as Orioles fans because we're going to point back and said, that was our ace and he got away. And until someone has a Nusina-like career, we're always going to be disappointed with our starting pitching. No, I agree with you. But I also think that we need to be eyes open for— it's okay for starters to fail and to become good major league pitchers, albeit relievers. Yeah, I mean, it's perfectly fine, and it's absolutely a necessity. Um, I, I think we just need to realize that the only way the Orioles are going to be able to compete again um, in that you know four- to six-year window is by developing starting pitching and um, facilitating that transition. You know, Alex Cobb is doing, you know, a serviceable job so far the second half of the season. And, you know, it, this is kind of what the Orioles were hoping to get when they first signed him. Andrew Kashner is doing what he does. He's, he's an innings eater. And we never thought he was going to be a great pitcher. Dylan Bundy is much more of a concern to me. And Dylan Bundy has been absolutely horrible for the second half of the season. And I do wonder if the Orioles are going to say, that's enough, Dylan. We're just going to let you rest it out. And we're not going to have you pitch any more innings. And then if that happens, who takes Bundy's spot in the rotation? Or do the Orioles go to more of the Rays mentality of saying, we're going to throw a bunch of relief pitchers in there because we've got a 40-man roster we can flex now? All right, Dylan Bundy. Let me ask you the question, Scott. One, will this player be with the Orioles when they're good again? No, okay. he, he will not be. Unless he somehow signs a contract... Um, he will not be with the Baltimore Orioles come the time they're good. I agree with you. So two, can this player be developed into a trade chip for when the Orioles are good again? 
I think Dylan Bundy already is a trade ship. He already has a command of multiple pitches. And we there's been talk about this on, on Twitter, specifically about the Kevin Gossman turning into the Jake Arrieta. And I don't see Kevin Gossman turning into the Jake Arrieta. Um, there was an article on Fangraphs earlier this week um, talking about um, how Kevin Gossman's going to improve with the with the Braves. And the talk came back down to if he can you know find better fastball command and if he uses more of a splitter. Yes, this is this is things that we have been talking about on Bird's Eye View for many many years now. But the fact of the matter is, Kevin Gossman doesn't have any you know significant breaking balls pitches, um, and he's getting older and older. So his fastball command and his fastball velocity continues to decrease. I, I don't see Kevin Gossman as a number one. I don't see him as an ace, but I do see him as a serviceable number two, number three, just like I have for many a seasons. Um, but he's not going to be that Mike Mussina type player. He's not going to be a player that's going to be a top 15 player. Um, he could be a top 30 to top 45 pitcher. And I've held that my whole time. I think he can still do that. I just don't think he's the player that's going to be that superstar that the Orioles need. Again, the Orioles need a superstar like a Manny Machado to lead them once again into the promised land. So let me ask you this. The, the Orioles are like we say five to four to six years away from, from even thinking about it. That really puts the age of the players that we need to be focused on in kind of sharp contrast, I think, because, you know, unless they're in that 18 to 21 range, they're going to be not only approaching the, uh, you know, the back end of productivity, so to speak, but they will be ending their club control. You know, they will be reaching arbitration years. And so I wonder if the core of the team that we're going to love next is not really in Frederick and below, right? And so as excited as I am to see... It's in Biloxi, Mississippi, is what you're telling me. <laughs> right, right. I hope that they're born yet. Yes. Um, but but as excited as I am to see some players come in to, to AA, and, you know, for some of the moves we're making, I, I think we really need to refocus on, you know, what are the kids that are in Frederick and Delmarva right now shaping up to be? And how do we judge those prospects? How do we judge those careers uh, as they move forward? Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, I, I think if you look at it, more than likely anybody that's at Norfolk right now is probably not going to contribute. But I do think there are players in Bowie right now that have the ability to be long-term contributors into this rebuild and maybe not be there for when the Orioles are winning playoff games, but can be part of that transition. It's not going to be this instant, all right, we're going to become a winning team and then we're going to get to a playoffs. That was a magical season that we saw in 2012, but the likelihood that it's going to happen again where you're going to be, you know, we finally got above 500 and now we're also in a playoff. It's probably not going to happen, but if they could get back to 500 and play 500 baseball, um, that would be worthwhile. So I think, do think like players like Cedric Mullins who came up this week and do think players like Austin Hayes may not be good enough to be that superstar, but may be good enough to be that transition piece and while Pilgrims were talking about Jonathan Scope and Trey Mancini and Kevin Gossman as the foundation to build around to get back to 500 baseball, I more so look at that group of talent in order to get the team back to 500 baseball and hope that the Orioles can draft or go sign an international prospect that will be the next superstar for the Baltimore Orioles and can potentially lead them back quicker to above 500. Yeah, I think the guys that you're describing are really in that third category of being useful and not being in the way. 
Right. The difference between having a, a, a Diaz or a, a Cedric Mullins in the outfield versus an Adam Jones, right? We need to showcase that talent. We need to be able to see if these are going to be guys that are the solution or if they're the transition piece. And while, you know, while they're terrible, we have the, uh, you know, we have the flexibility. We have the luxury of being able to do that. Uh, I agree. It, it's going to be interesting, you know, because I think we as fans, we hope, right? That's what we do. And for 14 years, we were fed on hope. But that happened because I think in many ways, we allow ourselves to do that. You know, Cedric Mullins comes up and instantly people are saying, oh, that's our center fielder of the future. I think you and I both have some concerns about whether or not he can play center field for an extended period of time at the major league level. But we want him to succeed. Right. We want this to work. Um, So I think that, you know, we kind of have to balance it. One, we have to be real with ourselves. And on the other hand, you know, we have to allow ourselves to enjoy it even when the club is not winning playoff games. Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about Cedric Mullins, you know, center field, I think it does come back down to there has to be a strategy and an approach. It can't just be uh, a situation as Buck has done in the past where you say, well, we have Adam Jones in center field. We can put anybody we want in right field. One of the big critical aspects of outfield defense was you had Jones and Marcakis out there in right field and center field. And I railed against Marcakis many years saying, you know, Marcakis doesn't have the range necessary, but there was a familiarity with Jones and Marcakis specifically to know what kind of routes someone had to take in order to get that ball. And I do think it's going to be a situation where the Orioles have to commit to that and say, Mullins will be in center field, Hayes is going to be in right field, and in left field, I don't know, maybe it's DJ Stewart or somebody else. I, I don't know. But they're going to have to start building this 2110 kind of moment and movement in order to both get the fan base excited about this is what the future could look like. And number two, really emphasize familiarity and speed out there that we currently don't see. I love Trey Mancini as a player. I love, you know, how he goes out there and approaches at the plate, but I don't like seeing him in left field. I want to see Trey Mancini in the field at first base and or as a DH going forward Chris Davis and Mark Trumbo do nothing for me at this point. I want to see Trey Mancini come into the infield or be the DH, and I want to see three true outfielders that have good range and can take good routes to the ball going forward. That's what would excite me going forward in the future. Yeah, and then the question just becomes, you know, they develop into real outfielders, real major league players, or are they Louis Matos? Right, or, you know, Luke Scott's. Oi. Oi. We're talking about the red wave still? <laughs> no, we are not. I would like to not keep that change. Um, is there anything else that you look for uh, at this point? I mean, here we are. We're riding out an ugly season. Again, I'm at the point where I'm like, show me things at bat to at bat. You know, I watched that entire Red Sox series, some of which uh, was in person. And, you know, when the loss happened, I wasn't really that upset. What I, what I want to see is, is there a good approach? Are these good at bats? Are people taking good routes? Are we seeing quality pitches? You know, even if even if the bat doesn't work out, are we seeing you know good pitches that that are sequenced poorly? That kind of thing. What what are you trying to make of of the rest of the season? How are you giving these meaningless games meaning? I think the the one thing that I've watched but I cringe at is I look at the infield, and for so many years the infield was such a strong suit for the Baltimore Orioles, and we always talked about. Well, the infield defense will stop it. And now you look at the infield and you go, number one, who? And number two, oh my gosh, it's horrible. And I'm concerned by this because there's nobody waiting in the wings ready to take over from the infield. 
Which comes back to my point of if you have time available and you've got nothing to lose, does it hurt you to say, we want to bring up a Ryan Mountcastle and we want to play him at third base. And if that doesn't work out, we want to move him over to second base just to see what happens. Because if he doesn't, he's not able to play third base and he's not able to play second base, then this comes back to the outfield dilemma that I was talking about before is you need to start working on that transition of getting Mountcastle out into left field sooner rather than later. But when I look at, you know, Renato Nunez and I look at Jonathan VR and I look at Jace Peterson, yeah, okay, sometimes they have good games, but on the whole, I look at this and I say, this is an individual that I don't need to watch because he's not part of the future. Mountcastle could be part of that future at third base or second base, and I'm much more interested to see that. But I also understand the implicacy of bringing him up, starting his clock, and then not being available in the six years when he's going to be necessary for this team. I just would rather see it now than later. What about and and this is I mean this is an opinion I th- I think it, there's no oh, really okay. good answer. Is this bird's eye view? Oh yeah yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this is a baseless opinion. Yes. Uh, but what is the role of the major leagues as far as that player development and evaluation? You know, when you talk about can Mountcastle hack it at third? Can he hack it at second? Is that what he's supposed to be doing now in the minors? Or do you think that it can only be truly battle-tested at the major league level? You know, I don't think it's absolutely necessary, but Buck has made this point before, specifically with players coming up. And he's mentioned that it's important for them to get a feel for, you know, a major league baseball schedule, being part of that clubhouse, doing the travel that they're doing. And I do think there is an inherent advantage and value for that going through the rest of the season since it's a throwaway season, but also getting ready for the 2019 season. As much as we'd like to say, well, that's a good way for the for the veterans to rub off on players during spring training, I think it's a better option even to say, hey, we recognize the talent that you are doing and all the good stuff, and uh, we're going to reward you by bringing you up a little bit early and uh, just, just kind of beginning the process with you and getting you ready for 2019 when you're going to be part of the 25-man plans. I can't imagine that Jace Peterson or Renato Nunez is part of the 25-man plans for 2019. I don't think you realize how dark these ages are going to be, Scott. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be pretty bad, pretty bad. Well, hey, you know, this is a big week for Orioles baseball. And, Scotty, I was just wondering if we could take a break, come back, and revisit an old friend. Scotty, big news this week. Big. The biggest news. How big? This big. That's right, one and all. It is time to dust off an old bird's eye view favorite. It's the Brian Roberts watch. We have some legitimate Brian Roberts watch news. This week... The Orioles Hall of Fame Class 2018 was inducted into the most prestigious Hall of Fame in Baltimore professional baseball. That's right. Not only Fred Manfred, but our very own Brian Roberts were fitted with the green jacket. 
It was great to see Brian Roberts. It was great to remember what a special player he was and how much I enjoyed watching him. And Scott, the most important thing, his wife Diana was there too. Yeah, I gotta be honest. I'm over it. Oh, Scotty. I figured you would be consistent. She she needs to go back to opening the cases on Let's Make a Deal. (laughs) But you know what? Uh, B-Rob, a little grayer than we remember him, perhaps, yep. but still totally doable. That's not true, according to my wife. Some things never change. But she's still a Brady fan, apparently. <laughs> Who isn't, though? Who is not? Uh, so the Orioles Hall of Fame is an interesting topic, and it got me to thinking. That's beer things. number two, by the way, That's for those keeping <laughs> keeping track. Um, so the the Orioles Hall of Fame. Honored Brian Roberts, who played for the Baltimore Orioles for 13 seasons. He was a bright spot in some truly awful, awful years. Um, But one of my favorite players of all time. And I think the Orioles boofed this. I think they totally screwed this up. I think that it is inconceivable how they thought that putting it in a game, uh, a, a Red Sox game, was a good idea. I think that the Orioles needed to pair the Orioles Hall of Fame game with some giveaway that would put fans in the seats wearing the right color and avoid a hostile takeover fan base like the Red Sox or the Yankees. Mm. I, I think that having these guys come out and wave to a mass of green seats and disinterested Red Sox fans was a, a mistake. So maybe like re-release a Brian Roberts, Black Melvin Moore, a bobblehead. Now you're thinking <laughs> because everybody wants two of those. Yes. Just give him white Brian Roberts and then black Melvin Mora. <laughs> I think that might, uh, I think that might work. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, again, I could just, fi- pour, I could spend the rest of this podcast pouring out love for Brian Roberts, mm-hmm. but let's, let's move on from that. I am curious about this. Okay. The good years. Yeah. 2012 to 2017 or, you know, 16 and a half. Um, who do you think will be fitted for the green jacket? Of those players that we watched during this time. Okay. Well, obviously Adam Jones. Easy. That's an easy one. Yeah. I even heard someone say that should Adam Jones' number be retired, which I absolutely disagree with. But I do like the fact that the Orioles only retire Major League Hall of Fame players. Right. Now, one thing I will say about that is Mm -hmm. that the Orioles have a very cool policy of having number seven officially out of rotation or unofficially out of the rotation, right? No player will wear number seven for quite some time. And I think that's very cool. I think that it would be okay for the Orioles to say, you know what? We're going to put 10 on the shelf for a little while Mm -hmm. and we're going to give Adam Jones five years of respect. Sure. Because when I come and watch a Jamile Weeks wear number one, or when I watch you know, who who wore 21 right after Marcakis left, yep. whoever it was. It feels a little jarring. Danny Valencia wearing J.J. Hardy's number. Like, dude, just yep. put it on the shelf for a couple of years. Sure. Don't retire it, but give me some time to adjust. Yeah. Well, that's, that's all like, I ask for. That's a great other name, too, to throw into the Hall of Fame. Nick Marcakis is an obvious Hall of Fame candidate for the Baltimore Orioles from the Buckle Up Birds era. I, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, uh, a, a fan favorite a very productive player, a guy with local ties. Yes, absolutely needs yeah. to wear the green jacket. Obviously, Buck Walter. 
Yeah, but here's the thing. We don't need to worry about retiring Buck Walter's number because very few people realize he wears a uniform number because, right. uh, you know, the sweatshirt is is uh, is not numbered. Yeah. All right. Now we're getting into a little bit of uh, other cases. I would go J.J. Hardy as an Orioles Hall of Fame candidate. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, there are no real rules with this. It's just what the Orioles advocates right. think. And they have to put somebody in every year. Right. No, I think J.J. Hardy is a, is a great uh, is a great choice. And of course, I think another one would have to be, and this is a very long term, Manny Machado. Yeah. So I was actually talking, I was actually talking with my kid about this, having a very insightful discussion. I, I mean, I wonder about that. He was here for what, six years mm-hmm. in the majors during some very good times for us. Yeah. If he goes off and has a very, an excellent career, eh, maybe, I guess it's just that he won't be ours. You know, yeah. he won't be, like, one of the things I like about Buck Showalter right now is that he is, like, noted Baltimore Orioles manager who also managed in some other places. Sure. Right? I feel like at this point, his career is he won here, you know, the mm-hmm. most games except for uh, Earl Weaver, and he managed the Yankees, and he managed, you know, the yeah, – okay. But with Manny Machado, I feel like his Baltimore years will be an afterthought. Sure. Um, I understand what you're saying. I think this comes back to the Mike Mussina aspect, mm. where I still think he is going to be recognized by the Orioles at this time. Um, then the names start really getting into potential, like miscellaneous category. One that I would throw out there as a potential name um, that I think should get big in consideration would be Zach Burton. Okay. I feel like you're getting borderline, but I mean, we've hit the big ones. Right. So, yeah, I, I, I could see that. Here's the caveat that I had. Okay. Zach Burton can only be nominated to the Hall of Fame with his jacket if he stays in the bullpen. <laughs> okay. But we're missing two obvious ones for the Buckle Up Birds area. And these are like slam dunks. All right. Well, before you get there, because I'm not sure we're on the same page. Yeah. But let me ask you this one. Yeah. Gary Thorne. This is one of my ones okay. that I was mentioning. Yeah, Gary, I think he's got to be. Gary Thorne is an obvious Orioles Hall of Fame candidate. As much as I'm not a Gary Thorne fan, he's obviously going to get totally the Gary Thorne aspect. His his character, right, right. He he is he makes games entertaining, correct, even when they're not. And if that's where you're going with the first one, the second one has to be wave it bye bye. Absolutely, open the door, Grandma. Joe Angel has to be yep an Orioles Hall of Famer. I mean, the the sheer number of years that he has been the voice of Orioles baseball. And I mean, he worked with, with Miller. Yep. Uh, and, but the thing is, is that he is the sound of Orioles baseball for a generation plus of Orioles fans. Correct. He might not be John Miller and he might not be Chuck Thompson, Thompson, but he's the best we have right now. And he's a darn good one. Yep. I agree with you about this. Here's another one for you. Okay. This is a little bit further out there. What about Clarence Haskett? What? Clarence Haskett. Who is Clarence Haskett? Oh. Fancy Clarence. Oh. All right. I like that. I do like that. Wow. I hadn't even considered that. Huh. It's a good idea, Scotty. Yeah. But you know what? We are. We're, we're dwelling. We're, we're dwelling on, on, on good times. And there are bad times coming. Oh, yes. They're already here, actually. <laughs> there are worse times coming, my yes. friend. Uh, so let me ask you this, Scotty. The Orioles have their own Hall of Fame, and that's that's fine. Yeah, that's great. Whatever. 
But I think it's more important to ask you this. Why don't they have a Hall of Shame? Oh, that's a good one. Clearly, there are people who deserve it. And frankly, this this team will fill up the Hall of Shame quicker in the next few years than they'll fill up a Hall of Fame. So, Scotty, let's let's do them a favor. Sure. Let's let's get some nominees for the Orioles Hall of Shame ready for them for when they actually start this up. So let me just let me kick this off. I I feel like there are three ways that you can get into the Orioles Hall of Shame. Okay. Um, First is just clear on the field performance. Yep. And second, like the Orioles Hall of Fame, you can have off field contributors. But I would like to call this one the Nestor Aparicio Award. Mm. Okay. Um, and then the the third, I, I think, is just for moral failures uh, while wearing an Orioles uniform sure. that that get into the Orioles Hall of Shame. Speaks for itself. Sure, absolutely. So, l- like I said, we have some retirees from the ugly category in the bird's eye view, good, bad, and the ugly. And so I'm going to start with the Orioles Hall of Shame mm-hmm. with Ibaldo Jimenez. Okay. I think that he was a very nice guy. Mm-hmm. I think that the expectations plus his performance, plus the era that he pitched in, you know, the the good years, is a perfect combination for the Hall of Shame. I think that's a good one. Uh, from a Hall of Shame, I think it's going to have to go to Sammy Sosa coming in during the 2005 season. Uh, came in with, uh, you know, he you knew he was somewhat washed up, but you're like, maybe we can get something out of it. And 2005 has this bitter distaste in your mouth almost like a skunk beer as it were where it starts off so fresh and then as you continue to sip you're just like this was not a good idea why why was i drinking this um so he enters my hall of shame just in terms of how bad his performance were i like that all right let me also look a bit to the past i think glenn davis yeah has a real chance of being a hall of shamer yeah i mean again expectation versus actual play on the field and what it meant for the franchise clear hall of shamer sure uh one of mine is a a controversial one but i'm gonna go with alan mills Hmm. as a hall of shame candidate all right let me hear this all right so alan mills pitched for the baltimore's between 1992 and 1998 theoretically that should have been a golden time for the baltimore Orioles. sure sure uh, in fact, in the 94 strikes uh, shortened season, the Orioles were leading the AL East and had a potential to get into the playoffs. But Alan Mills during the 1994 season posted a 5.6 war, uh, 5.6, 5.16 ERA uh, during the 1994 season. Okay. Maybe it was a bad season. Let's go to 1996. Alan Mills pitched a 5.70 FIP for a negative 0.3 war. In 96, he had 8.23 Ks per nine. All right, that's not too bad. With 5.76 walks per nine. Whoa. And then in 1997, wire to wire, Alan Mills had a 4.89 ERIA and a 5.77 FIP. Alan Mills, during his entire career for the Baltimore Orioles, posted a negative 2.6 F war, a 4.16 ERA, and a 5.25 FIP. In 346 games pitched. Yeah, he pitched a lot of games. But you know what? He wasn't really good. You know what they say. Those who cannot do, coach in the bullpen. Yep. Absolutely. That's a good one, Scotty. Uh, I'm going to go, and again, looking back, one of my Hall of Shamers, Larry Bigby. Mm, Yeah. And maybe this isn't fair. No, it's fair. 
But I associate Larry Bigby with the Mitchell Report. Yep. I associate him. Well, I got him to sign the Mitchell Report (laughs) when he had the autograph session. He was not happy with me. (laughs) I associate him with the worst black mark that the Orioles had on on them at that time, which is that this is a dirty club. And, uh, you know, again, he was supposed to be the next big thing, and he wasn't, and he had that going on. So a Hall of Shamer for me. Jake, I'm disappointed. What? I'm disappointed that you didn't pull out the gasoline can, dump it all over you, and light it on fire. Kevin Gregg has to be in the Hall of Shame. Now I'm in the Hall of Shame. How did I miss that? <laughs> How did I miss that? Look, oh my Orioles gosh. fans will look back and think about the David Ortiz instance, but and honestly, Kevin Gregg didn't even land any nice punches against David Ortiz. Even in his moment of glory, he came up missing. He landed more punches into my gut than he punched <laughs> David Ortiz. All right, I have a I have a uh, a trio here. Well, okay. no, it, it, I'm going to actually bring it down to a duo. Um, I'll call this the uh, the Lost Hope division okay. of the Orioles Hall of Shame, and I'm going to put Hayden Penn and Daniel Cabrera in that wing. Can I the, can I put uh, Brad Bergeson in there as well? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and possibly you know his uh, his mass and commercial director goes in there as well. Yeah. Uh, if we're going to talk uh, pitchers, though, Sidney Ponson has to go in the Orioles of Hall of Shame. Of course, I mean he's punched his ticket. Of course. I think some people want to go back and talk about Albert Bell, but would you put Albert Bell into the Hall of Shame? Not really. I mean, he was a jerk, so maybe on the moral side. I mean, yeah. I did talk about that. Right. All right. You want to do off-field contributors? Uh, I have I have just one more, and I, I wanted to, to make sure we hit it. Uh, Jack Cust. Oh, Jack has Cust. To be, has to be an Orioles Hall of Shamer. Yes. Even just for the one instance of falling flat on his face. Absolutely. Oh. D- David Segui is actually a good one, too, for a Hall of Shame. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, from a uh, from a moral uh, uh, fiber standpoint. Yeah. What about Delman Young? Ooh, that's a good one. Who could who could possibly be an Orioles Hall of Famer and an Orioles Hall of Shamer just for that one hit? I've got one that is a pullback though. Okay. Reggie Jackson in the nineteen seventy six Orioles. I do like that. Yeah, I do like that. Yeah, not wanting to come and play for the Baltimore Orioles in nineteen seventy six. All right. Who is your off-field contributor for the Orioles Hall of Shame? Uh, I'm going to have to go with Michael Regai <laughs> as a <laughs> Hall of Shame, uh, absolutely terrible uh, play-by-play color commentator for uh, for the Baltimore Orioles um, right before Gary Thorne and Mike Borda kind of took over. Yeah, um, yeah, Michael Regai, absolutely horrible. All right. Anybody else in the off the field category? Because I I have one, but it's uh it's a little brutal, and I I think we should work up to it. Um, I I really just don't like Michael Ray guy. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Scott, for my Orioles Hall of Shame, I'm going to put Sam Dingman and Alan Smith directly into the Nestor Aparicio wing of the Orioles Hall of Shame. You know, it is warranted for what they did. For the heights of production value and quality, of humor, of content, of commentary, for what they brought to the Orioles' uh, faux media, and then to rip it away from us, the Baltimoreans have done not only a disservice to us and to themselves, they've brought shame to the Orioles' community. So Sam and Alan, 
This is all on you. For tearing the Baltimore on. My favorite Orioles podcast away from us. You are in the Orioles Hall of Shame. Hey, who did we miss? Birdland, please let us know. Tweet at us at BirdseyeViewBAL with the hashtag uh, O's Shame. And let us know who's in your Orioles Hall of Shame. And with that, it's time for some good, some bad, and some ugly. That's right. It's time for the good, the bad, and the ugly. Jake, why don't you go ahead and start us off this week? I'm going to start with the good. We talked about it very briefly. Alex Cobb has had two good starts in a row. And again, all we can hope for is that he gets himself right in what's left of the season. So, you know, two seven-inning stints with a run or two given up in each. And I'll take that every day of the week. Yeah, I actually have been really impressed lately with... uh Alex Cobb. It's not showing up so much in, in the win column, but uh, from a game score standpoint, uh, he hasn't had a flop game since July 8th. So a good solid months where he's putting up, you know, decent performances and keeping his team in the ball game. So kudos to Alex Cobb. Uh, my good for the week has got to go to Adam Jones, uh, handling the whole situation with the Mullins uh, promotion uh, with such grace. And then also posting some pretty decent numbers this week, 130 weighted runs created plus, uh, and uh, a 346 on base percentage. Um, that's a good week for Adam Jones and uh, tip the cap for him. And just in terms of how classy he has been, absolutely. Uh, my bad is going to be Dylan Bundy, and Dylan Bundy had a rough game most recently. But the the thing is about Dylan Bundy, it's not just the fact that he gave up eight runs, seven earned, over five innings pitched in his last outing. It's that. He's all we've got left. He is the hope, and it's fading. And if he can't be the hope, he needs to be a trade chip, and that's fading. So on that score, Dylan Bundy, regardless of the details, was bad this week. Mine's going to go to Jonathan Villar, who posted a eight. I'm sorry, a 17 weighted runs created plus, 148 average, 233 on base percentage, 185 slugging. Um, big point here was Jonathan Villar didn't make any contact. 35.5 K rate fits right there with the Baltimore Orioles. But this is this whole aspect of John Villar. He'll get hot and uh, start hitting for some, you know, extra base hits and then go ice cold and strike out a ton. He's going to fit in pretty well in Birdland. All right. My ugly is going to be the meaningless games in August. It really is a bummer to turn on the, the baseball game and realize that it doesn't matter. None of this matters. And when the Orioles were officially eliminated, you know, it was just like a deep, heavy sigh. You know, now we are nothing but a laughing stock. Now we are nothing but a, a, a punchline. And there's nothing to watch for. You know, I looked up at the uh, at the standings the other day, and I wasn't so much interested in the number of games back. I was more surprised by the fact that they had won, uh, they had lost five consecu- uh, consecutive games, and I didn't even realize it. You know, I just kind of consigned my fa- myself to the fact that they were just going to lose all the time, uh, and that's that's a bummer. So the it's not just the apathy; it's the meaninglessness of it all. It's the 
the lack of an import of any of these games that we're going to watch for the rest of the season. My ugly for the week is going to go to Miguel Castro, who has been pitching pretty abysmal lately. Um, he's posted a 16.88 ERA this week, uh, a 15.16 FIP, uh, high K rate, terrible walk rate, uh, 6.75 home runs per nine. And more importantly, just kind of going through the entire uh, 2018 season, Miguel Castro is posting a 3.86 ERA and a 5.0 FIP. And that comes out to be a negative 0.2 F4. What's interesting to me is um, this is a player that some fans were clamoring for and saying, this is a player we want to give a starter spot to. There's nothing that I've seen from Miguel Castro that makes me think that he should be a starter for this team or any team in the future. In fact, I, I don't see any reason why Miguel Castro even should be a potential bullpen piece moving forward. There's a lot other more individuals on this club that have more talent. And I never thought I would say this, but Mike Wright has more talent than Miguel Castro. Yikes. Yeah. Yikes. That sentence is ugly. That sentence is ugly. Actually, the fact that that sentence has some merit is ugly. Yeah, absolutely. You want to blow the save? Let's do it. I was digging around for some Orioles news before the podcast, and I came across an article by Mike Dowling in Forbes. Oh, I thought, oh, you know, Forbes, you know, an article about the Orioles. This should be interesting. Let's let's take a look. They also at write it. about wrestling. Do they really? Yeah, and uh, Pokemon. They're dead to me now. Yeah. Uh, the article was entitled "Is Red Sox versus the Orioles True Competitive Major League Baseball?" And the article was just—I mean, it was a hack job. It was awful. Just, you know, they could have said the Orioles are terrible and Period. saved the rest of the words. Like, that was just, that was the article. But his editor wouldn't accept that. It was cheap shot after cheap shot. But for my blowing the save, I'm not actually going to take issue with Mike Dowling. I would like to take this moment to remind Orioles fans that this kind of crap happens. And so, as we endure the next four to six years, hopefully, and not a generation. But as we endure the next X years of this treatment, as we get that chip on our shoulder and grow it larger and larger and larger, do not allow yourself to become that which you hate when the Orioles are good again. In the Buckle Up Birds era, there were moments when the Orioles fan base, which had been so brutally beaten down, let their egos get away from them in a way that was very reminiscent of Red Sox fans. And it made me a little uncomfortable. And so I would like you to keep score, Orioles fans. I'd like you to take note. Every time there's a hatchet job like, is Red Sox versus the Orioles true competitive Major League Baseball? Remember that. And then don't do that when it's us. When the Orioles are dominating the AL East or whatever division we may be a part of, as Scott is uh, fond of letting us know, don't be that guy. There are plenty of ways to enjoy a winning club that does not require you to climb up higher by pushing others lower. If you don't like being treated like a cellar dweller, if you don't like being punched like a punchline, don't let yourself do it when it's our turn. But Jake, if they weren't so fat, 
If they weren't so fat, <laughs> I wouldn't have a problem. That's true. I'm just pointing out this. I mean, in the house that Mookie built, we need to point out these things. <laughs> As the chip on my shoulder gets larger and larger. Thanks, Scotty. No problem. And that that is our show. Remember, you can find this and our entire catalog of indispensable episodes at birdseyeviewbaltimore.com. Bird's Eye View is available for download wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and many others. Please remember to rate and review the show. We appreciate the feedback, and it encourages other people to listen for the first time. Come get social with us. You can email us at contact at birdseyeviewbaltimore.com. You can find me at jake at birdseyeviewbaltimore.com and scott at scott at birdseyeviewbaltimore.com. You can find us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, and Snapchat, but the best way to reach us is on Twitter where we tweet at birdseyeviewbal. And there's been a lot of people contacting us <laughs> for some unknown reason. And with that, Misery Baltimore, loves company. <laughs> does it? Yeah, does it really? It does. I think it just loves misery. And with that, Baltimore and Beyond, I will bid you all a fond... Adieu, adieu. Good night to the city that Mookie built. Be safe out there. And let's go pseudo Red Sox Nation. Why do I do these things to you, Jake? Why? Why do I do these things to you? Just to rub it in your face. Don't do this when we're bad, Scott. Remember what it's like to be bad. Too late. still here? It's over. Go home. Go.